0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
0: Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, in Macbeth, Malcolm describes the magical healing powers of the king. How his solicits heaven himself best knows, but strangely visited people all swollen and ulcerous, pitiful to the eye, the mere despair of surgery he cures, hanging a golden stamp about their necks. The idea that a monarch could heal with his touch flowed from the idea that a king was sacred, appointed by God, and above the judgment of earthly powers. This was called the divine right of kings and it entered so powerfully into British culture during the 17th century that it shaped the pomp and circumstance of the Stuart monarchs imbued the writing of Shakespeare provoked the political thinking of Milton and Locke and helped a regicide about a century and a half before the French Revolution. With me to discuss the divine right of kings is Justin Champion, professor of the history of early modern ideas at Royal Holloway College University of London. Claire Jackson, lecturer and director of studies in history at Trinity Hall, Cambridge, and Tom Healy, professor of renaissance studies at Birkbeck College, University of London. Justin Champion, this is an idea that can be traced back, the idea of the ruler as a god can be traced back a long way, but it became particularly important in Europe during and after the Reformation in the 16th century. Can you explain why it emerged so and became so powerful at that particular time?
2: I, I think if we... Go all the way back to the pre-Reformation period. That The idea of divine right monarchy or divine right government is, is commonplace. It's an assumption, the, the basic um, tools really for thinking about politics and obligation and perhaps even sovereignty. It, it's a, a, a theocratic argument. So it's driven in one sense by Catholic theology with the Reformation, the fracturing of that carapace of Catholic theology means if you are a Protestant country, you need to think of ways of justifying the authority in your own nation. And the monarchy is the ready way to to do that. And we can see, perhaps for example, in the frontispiece of the Great Bible of 1540, Henry VIII represents himself as being whispered in the ear by God. The verbum Dei is, is striking him on the head. It's a descending theory of government that allows a protestant community to have direct access to god without going through the papacy so it's sort of counterintuitive that divine right monarchy one would think is a traditional catholic um viewpoint but in fact it's invented in a much more profound way by protestant culture
0: the idea of a person, a man, was always was a man, and being divinely inspired, being divinely given uh, the gift to rule, well had that been uh, around the discussions in medieval and even earlier times in europe let 's stick to Europe for this uh, this discussion
2: uh, absolutely in the earlier period uh, w- w- one um, as, as a political task wants to know where authority comes from, and there are really two ways of thinking about this: either uh, political authority um, ascends from the body of the people from the community, and there are all sorts of classical traditions for thinking about that. but the dominant ideology is a descending theory of government. government comes from God, and inevitably in the medieval period, there is a conflict between the the, the sources for that voice of God: is it the papacy, which is the dominant form? or a civil government. So we can think of the political theory in the pre-Reformation period, perhaps all the way back to the 9th century, as being theocratic, but also being a contest between civil authority, a regnum, and sacred authority, a sacerdotium. So it's priest versus king. And a lot of those debates are, for example, focused on arguments about the coronation. When a king is uh, anointed, does that create his sacred authority? If it does... Is it the church that's creating that channel of grace or not? And there, there are a lot of very technical debates about precisely how authority is divine and how the king himself gets that authority.
0: But even before the Reformation, we have two camps. I mean, they're not what they become after the Reformation, as it were, king versus pope, but there are two camps. There always seem to have been, reading, uh, reading for this programme, two views about this, uh, the, the theocratic view and, loosely, the anti-theocratic view, that they're, they're, the earthly powers and heavenly mm. powers...
2: Absolutely, and I I think thinkers like Marsilius of Padua and William of Ockham Mm. want to recognise in one sense that secular authority has to be the root cause of sovereignty, although they don't use that word, within a state. Where does obligation come from? Do we obey a king or an institution because it's created by God or because we've in some sense consented to it? So I think there are those two tensions all of the way through. That's theory. We've always got to remember this is practice as well. In, in any parish or in any community, there will be powerful men who are not only princes and magistrates, but are priests. So the conflict is one that's not only fought in the mind, it's fought out in, in, in real life, if you like.
0: Tom Healy, to just to, to play around with the the, uh, the time before the Reformation, before we get to it, uh, a, li- a little longer, Does St Augustine was massively influential in the Middle Ages and right through as a, as a theologian and as a philosopher and as a man whom people... Followed uh, and so on. Did he had he planted any uh, ideas in this area, which became which were taken up and were influential in the shaping of the ideas we're going to talk about? I-
3: I- indeed, um, I mean, you drew attention to this constant tension between the secular and the sacred, and this is really at the heart of Augustine's most important work, his uh, City of Gods, Civitas Dei, and in that Augustine marks out. Two cities, the city of men uh, and the city of God, and he suggests that really human activity should be directed at the city of god and this is ultimately of course to the afterlife to our um, where where we go uh, after we die and and to some extent, this means that we should not take too active a view about um, the, con- the conditions of, uh, that, that we live under now, that we should, in a sense, be obedient. Uh, but it also supports that idea that effectively that, that God is, is looking after our interests. He's directing us towards the city of God. So in uh, you sense in Augustine
0: that he's talking about the place of the ruler in all this? And
3: uh, well, I, yeah. In the
0: sense that, 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 that Justin
3: was referring to Yes, that. because wh- what happens within Augustine is that the city of God is not just a, a spiritual domain. It's also something that can be created on the earth. I mean, he feels that the city of men is fundamentally chaotic. It's, it's tumultuous. It's um, filled with self-interest, uh, whereas the city of God is is interested in higher pursuits. So he posits an earthly life presided over by a ruler who or a, a government who has divine authority and which we fundamentally give up our rights to. We agree to be governed by them. And that this is a healthy form of government against, a healthy form of existence against that type of chaotic self-interested life that classical antiquity had had, had experienced. So he provides a powerful argument, in a sense, for this model that through God to the monarch and then the dispensation down, down to people. But importantly for the Renaissance, I think, Augustine also contains within his thought the very kernel that will actually affect a questioning of divine right and divine authority. Because what he's anxious about is if, in this tumultuous concerns of the city of men, if excess takes place, if you have a figure who seems to be following his own appetites, is he really a godly ruler? Can actually he, although there might be a claim to divine authority, in fact, that might be a false claim. And that, that haunts the Renaissance. That Sorry.
0: No, sorry, please finish,
3: That haunts the Renaissance. That it, particularly in the post-Reformation uh, period, that although the king, although technically there's always an acceptance that the monarch should at, and can claim divine authority, that individual monarchs might actually either be self-deceiving or particularly deceiving their people. That they are actually treacherous to God and satanic in that model.
0: Again, we have this of uh, reality, almost as divinity is. One thing, but absolutism and excess is another Indeed. thing. Can I just fast forward a thousand years? I'm obviously sorry about this. To Erasmus, <laughs> and bring us to the year before Luther pinned the the, the, the notes to, to the door of the Wittenberg. Um, Erasmus wrote "The Education of a Christian Prince," came out in 1516, and he is a thinker, uh, theologian, Dutch humanist, great theologian. He is a thinker in this uh, in, in the process we're going to describe. So, can you briefly tell us the
3: part, the place? Uh, he occupied, and then we move on. Well, Erasmus takes up on this model that the the true monarch is a Christian monarch. That is, someone who follows the teachings of, of the Bible. So he takes the idea, the, the classical idea, of the philosopher prince, and he says that uh, that a, a Christian ruler is also a philosophical ruler. So he's in this model of of moderate. He seeks justice and the best for his people through his own Moderation in his own life and that he becomes a type of ideal model for for his people. So, again, that the excesses of appetite are put under control and that that creates a health in himself and, as a result, a healthy nation. And this is the model that God wishes that this is points us towards true government, which is ultimately interested in our afterlife pointing us in the direction of, of heaven. And so he also picks up on this this model that is against excessive tyranny and creates the, this ideal of what the the true prince, the true monarch, who is divinely ordained, should reflect. And then he similarly creates this dilemma. If a monarch is seen to be acting excessively, can he legitimately claim divinity?
0: And the, the fifteen seventeen marks. Let us call it the beginning. Well, it is the beginning of the the Reformation. The end of that century. Um, James the sixth of Scotland, whom James the seventh, published two books in fifteen ninety seven. Was Basilic on Doron and the True Law of Free Monarchies, in which he declared that kings, even by God himself are called God. He was a very considerably accomplished theologian, a a, a great linguist who said he'd read everything of theological value in every European language. Can you... uh, it's It's a big move forward. And can you give us the gist of his arguments?
1: Yes, I mean, who better to speak yeah. about the divine right of kings than a monarch who thinks he's divinely ordained himself? I mean, I think if we're interested in studying political ideas and the context in which they're written, I think the view of kingship from the throne commands a unique fascination and relevance. And as you say, James publishes two major works in the 1590s while he's still King James VI of Scotland, The True Law of Free Monarchies, which is more of a theoretical work, and The Basilican Doran, which is more of a manual of kingship in that sort of speculum principius handbook of princes genre. I think to understand where James is coming from ideologically, though, we need to go just back a little bit into Scottish history to understand where his ideological... Makeup um, is formed. He's born 1566. He's crowned um, when he's only 13 months old in 1567, following the forcible deposition of his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, and her, well, her abdication, her forced abdication, had been orchestrated by a group of Protestant nobles who included George Buchanan, who thereafter assumes responsibility for James's education. And I think through through Buchanan's writing, we get an idea of the kind of um, intellectual experiences and theories to which James was exposed as a young child. Buchanan also writes two major Works on kingship, um, the Deuri Regni apid Scotus, which is published 1579, though probably written in the 1560s, and a history of Scotland, and they're radically. Um, desacralize their very secular theories um, they draw a lot on Ciceronian Stoic ideas and basically argue that a monarch is there to serve the people, that there's a contract between ruler and ruled that's affirmed by the coronation oath and that if by any chance a ruler breaks that contract with the people that the ru- that the subjects have a right and actually a duty to remove that monarch He saw, Buchanan tends to see a, doct- uh, a monarch in the same way as um, one would see a doctor with responsibility for the health of the body politic and if the body politic becomes diseased, one changes one's doctor. So this is the kind of um, uh, theory that's put forward to James. I mean, it's, it's a very incendiary um, doctrine of tyrannicide that subjects even have the, the duty to depose a monarch and even kill them. And his history of Scotland outlines exactly for James how this had operated, right back um, through ancient Scottish constitutionalism. One sees a series of monarchs who, if they've um, gone down the route of tyranny, a virtuous citizenry has risen up and removed them. So really, um Once James achieves his majority and once he begins to rule Scotland as an adult king from the 1580s onwards, that also coincides with Buchanan's death. His intellectual project really becomes one of legitimating or re-legitimating his own kingship, perhaps rehabilitating the Scottish monarchy with some of the dignity that it had suffered at the hands of Mary, Queen of Scots. And that expresses itself most fully in the two works, The True Law of Free Monarchies and the Basilican Doron. Um, I think they're both very short. They're both very readable. They're, they're quite terse um, in their in their construction. I think there's probably four strands to the true law of free monarchies. We have to move
0: forward a bit. So yeah. Can you just very brief crack point, on? A yeah, bit, yeah.
1: Just I mean, very, very four brief points. Really, monarchy uh, is divinely ordained. That kings are accountable to God alone. That hereditary succession governs the monarchy, and that subjects have no right of resistance. And those are the really sort of four points. Um, when he came to England in
0: 1603, he brought these ideas very forcefully with him, and and he. Eventually, in 1611, they were uh, they, they had a massive effect on on the new translation of the Bible, and it was King James's mm. Bible. It wasn't God's, really. Um, uh, so. Did that, the fact that he was on the throne of England as well as Scotland and Wales, uh, that obviously gave him a position of much greater power. And so you have a thinker, a serious thinker, on the throne in a, in a place of real power which had taken a big stand against the alternative, the Pope. And that changed, as it were, if I can use this right phrase, it changed the game in Europe, didn't it? With with James being so powerful, in powerful position there. Well,
1: I think the dynamics of debate are slightly different. In Scotland, his big en- his most prominent intellectual enemies have been the Presbyterian Church who advanced a theocratic theory of kingship. Um, in England there's, there are the Puritans that are out there, the, the hotter sorts of Protestants, but they're not advancing the same kind of pretensions uh, with the same amount of weight behind them as James had experienced in Scotland. James begins to turn his weight to the traditional enemies for divine right monarchs, the claims of the papacy. He's very quickly met by the gunpowder plot. He then um, imposes an oath of allegiance over all of um, his subjects. And I think historians are still divided about whether or not the divine right theory that James is proposing is primarily just a theory of um, obligation it's negatively advanced against the papacy or whether it's actually something more positive whether it's actually a theory of sovereignty that then claims for him all sorts of absolutist powers
0: Was he being, as I understand it, to Justin Chapman, he was being supported by other thinkers at the time. There's the Dutch Protestant living in London called Hadrian A. Saravia. Mm -hmm. I hope that's how I pronounce it. And he he wrote about the divine right of kings also. Could you briefly tell us uh, what he uh, said?
2: Absolutely. Saravia, a man who moved from Leiden to Lambeth um, in the course of his his career, is, is emblematic in one sense of the... Intertwined politics between religion um, and and secular politics, you know is, is a churchman he's hostile to all of the Protestant theories of resistance that Claire has talked about and wants to authorize divine authority within the the, the british state and and One of the things we can see from his writings is that th- this this theory I, I think we should probably talk about an instinct rather than a theory is, is incredibly bibliocentric. Uh, you know, Romans 13, obey the powers that be various statements in Proverbs you, know, you shall obey God, my son and the king um, the, the, the white noise if you like of political discourse comes from scripture And what um, theorists like Saravia and others are trying to do is is make a connection between the way people live their lives, their religious expectations and convictions and beliefs, and the way political authority is constructed. So the 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 strands that go in to create this ideology are are not simply propositional and theoretical; they they are social. They're they're,
0: um, much more part of the routine lives of of everyday people. How is this being briefed? How is this being? I'm going to say briefly how how is this being received justin it, it is di- this a, is this an, an argument among a very few people or is this this is going through the bishops is it going through the priests is it going to the country as the country saying, yes I, I think
2: especially after the accession of James the first and the the threat of the gunpowder plot which be becomes a great set piece for authorising allegiance and, and oaths of obligation. We, we can Godfather see... Godfather
0: plot sounds rather, rather charming and bonfire night. It was a huge terrorist attack. It which was needed a huge plot, plot and it, and it yes. gave
2: a massive platform for, for huge production of all sorts of, of political literature, from great set pieces to tiny little pamphlets and, more importantly, sermons. Every week, every Sunday, more often if you were a hot Protestant, you would get these sorts of languages preached and believed. So uh, uh, I think we've always got to recognise that the divine right theory of monarchy or of kingship is is a basic instinct for a lot of the community. Certainly on the continent, Roman Catholic theorists from Suarez through to Bellamy... uh, incredibly hostile. And one of the counterintuitive things about this period is, of course, that it's those thinkers who are much more radical in their constitutionalism, talk about the community and consent creating authority. So we have you know, good modern Roman Catholics defending the papacy and old-fashioned English Protestants defending an, an institution of monarchy. So it's, it's a very odd period.
0: Uh, Tom Healy, it, it, it comes into drama, spectacularly, as it were, Christopher Marlowe, Edward the II, the first time an English king has been killed on stage, mm-hmm. and then we have Shakespeare, Richard the Second. Out of those two, can you draw us a few conclusions as to what uh, those two playwrights and, and the literary scene at that time was saying about the divine right, how he took it on and, and how it, what he it did with it? Well, in both
3: respects, at one level, they question uh, when it becomes legitimate to overthrow a monarch and, indeed, whether a monarch can or should be overthrown. Both plays deal with kings who are presented, at least in the early part of the play, to the audience as giving in to excessive appetite, particularly Edward II. He's made out to... Too are uh, much under the control of his lover Gaveston, that uh, the relation being homosexual itself causes disquiet amongst his uh, his barons, and similarly in Richard II, uh, 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 Richard is presented as a weak and often seen as an effeminate king, a, f- a, a figure who is incapable of, of of ruling authoritatively, and again who exceeds his apparent mandate. But what both plays also do as they progress is to have an audience come back to start questioning this. Is the view of these figures as really excessive, uh, uh, borne out by what happens throughout the play? Do they actually... Is it not a matter that we see those who oppose them actually creating a, a view of them in this way and that their authority is more... Absolute or God-given and unquestioned, and particularly in Richard II, there is a, a a very very serious issue that arises because Richard, in effect, tries to depose himself. I mean, he's forced to by Bolingbroke, um, and but, but technically he resigns the crown. He's not actually forced off off the throne, but then in a very long uh, speech and scene, he really questions whether this. Can actually be done. Whether he, given that his authority comes from God, whether he can actually give up the crown. Whether there isn't something that is invested him, in him directly. And the play, I think, ultimately suggests that there is a a, a sense, a wide acceptance within the public that authority does ultimately emerge from God. That there is a view that this action in deposing Richard is going to have a very unfortunate legacy. It will lead to the Hundred Years' War. Now, the, the other issue comes back of whether this is actually coming from God, that God Himself is uh, chastising the nation for whatever sinful, unhealthy practices it may be engaging with, and therefore ultimately all of this stems from God rather than from man. It is ambiguous, and you've expressed that very well.
0: Can we just take it a little bit further, Cla- Cla- Jackson? In with, with Macbeth, we have regicide in Macbeth, and we have the the idea closer that the killing of a king <coughs> leads to well, what it led to in, in Macbeth. And in, in Hamlet, Hamlet, one of the reasons we are given to understand that Hamlet is, is prevented from or doesn't ki- kill... Claudius is just Claudius as a king and this will not only be a murder it'll be it'll be a, an offense against god and and, and so on so it it's, it's something that the playwrights have battened onto do you think they've battened onto it because it's such a good idea <laughs> or because they because it they, <laughs> it, it, they have this is what they see as the well to take up Justin's word the feeling the instinct of
1: the time I was going to say I mean to pick up on Justin's <laughs> point I think um, I think a lot of the ways in which divine right monarchy um, manifests itself is can be seen in more cultural sort of symbolic ways I mean, Macbeth is a very good example um, particularly one way of looking at Macbeth is to look at the relationship between a divinely ordained monarch such as James conceives himself to be the monarch who's watching the play and the use of the sisters and the witches. I mean if James as he very prominently uh, does regards himself as the Lord's anointed on earth then he's going to be the biggest enemy that the devil can have either in England or Scotland and James himself takes very seriously his responsibility as a divinely ordained monarch to eliminate those elements within society, i.e. witches, who represent the diabolic ele- element. So actually that scene where Macbeth goes to go and seek the witches' super or the sisters' supernatural powers to see ahead and have their, their, their sense of prophecy would have been deeply shocking to a monarch like James who writes on demonology, who takes his own um, responsibility for eliminating witchcraft very seriously. I mean, James himself has presided over witchcraft trials in Scotland as an attempt to eliminate those agents of the devil. I mean, very interesting about Macbeth as well is that, you know, Shakespeare does always provide alternative, more rational explanations for some of the more um, unintelligible of the witch's prophecy, things like the camouflaged army that marches to Dunsinane or Macbeth's very unusual, Macduff's unusual Caesarian birth. And I think the audience um, would have been just as obliged to adjudicate between the supernatural and the rational. But it is all an indication of the way in which the divine right of kings is reinforced um, in these other spheres.
0: Would it be true to say, just in the context of this conversation, I, and not in the context of several volumes on the subject, that the idea of divine right uh, uh, was a, bit, a very telling factor in the eventual regicide, in the eventual uh, public uh, trial of, and execution of, an anointed king, which is an extraordinary thing to do in the middle of the seven, uh, 17th century. Quite extraordinary, and we've got to sort of try to grasp how enormous that was. Uh, absolutely. And was the divine right... Factor, big uh, there.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's, one of the problems is those n- normal Whig narratives about the execution of Charles I, or it's, it's some sort of strategic political battle between King and Parliament. I think to capture the true horror of that moment, mm. and you know, in, in contemporary terms, it's equivalent to the planes going into Twin Towers. You know, it fractured all of the cultural certainties of that, that period around Europe. If, if we believe and live in a society where everything is ordained, every hierarchy, ev- every part of social structure, every bit of life <coughs> within the family, within the church, is, is given by God, any deviation from that mm-hmm. is blasphemy. Now, Charles I himself, you know, an odd man, I suspect, a very odd man, who wanted to, to use his majesty and his his sacral um, authority, but unfortunately didn't actually like most of his his people, Um finds himself manoeuvred into a position where he has to claim this anointed um, quality. I mean, if I give you one perhaps trivial example, kings are therapeutic, they're anointed by God, they can cure, they can do miracles. And the, the, the great miracle in the Stuart period is the royal touch, um, scrofula, sort of version of tuberculosis, very unpleasant. Um, kings traditionally, way back into the medieval period, could cure by touching. Charles I thought this was wonderful, Um, it represented his his divine authority, but he didn't actually like doing it, because you had to touch infected, grubby people. (laughs) Um, So from the late 1620s, while proclaiming his divinity, he issued series after series of proclamations banning these events. Well, of course, once the civil conflict had broken out in the 1640s, all of his advisors say, "You've got to touch as many people as possible," and we can see in those sort of encounters between divine monarch and ordinary suffering sort of citizen th- the power of this this theory. I think the power of that instinct. And the de- sorry, and you to I, I, I was okay. going to to
3: to, to, to um, come in and say that 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 I I think that one of the things that is this um, destabilizing point that can be come out from from a slightly different way in English society, that what happens, I think, is that people become convinced that Charles is fundamentally rather like Satan, that he who was God's first lieutenant in heaven and became the greatest traitor is in effect now... Similar to the monarch of England, that Charles is satanic in this way, that he who should have been rightly ruling in God's authority has become a traitor to God. And that then sparks off a, a wave of what should be done that ultimately leads to his execution.
0: But ki- uh, that's, that's a bit point well made but just to move across the cloud to take on to keep with Justin's point about the massive fracture mm. and it's, I mean one of the m- uh, most difficult things in history is just remembering or trying to get a grip on remembering not the end of that getting a grip on how big things were then because the past was 't not as it were it was, was just toothache yesterday morning but it was he became Charles, the execution, this is the end of the king, the end of a structure that had been going for, as far as most people are concerned, forever and ever and ever, not only in all those. It immediately started a great cult of Charles as a saint and martyr mm-hmm. in this Protestant society, run by Cromwell, everything driven out, and we have Icon mm-hmm. Basilica, which, which uh, you'll tell us about and tell us how p- important it yeah, I think it there's
1: was. A, a big swing away from what Tom was saying. I mean, suddenly Charles moves from being sort of Satan personified to uh, immediately acquiring this saintly state the image of a martyr within a week um, a volume of his meditations known as Icon Basilica is published with a very dramatic frontispiece which shows a kneeling Charles lit by divine rays with a crown of thorns very much in imitation of Christ and a lot of those parallels between Christ's crucifixion and um, Charles's regicide are exploited by authors his sayings and his meditations meditations. um, and And sort of prayers and reflections, it's an enormous bestseller and a lot of more courageous writers in the 1650s start exploiting those parallels I mean both Christ and Charles had been God's representatives on earth both had been deemed to be above human censure both had been deemed um, you know never to be able to kind of suffer in this way and yet both had suffered at the hands of false witnesses they both been put to death in very public manners and actually you could even begin to abbreviate Charles as was often done in early modern type typography with ch semicolon and that could also stand for Christ at the same time um, and ironically or, or interesting or sorry poignantly um, the New Testament lesson for the 30th of January the date that Charles had actually been executed was 27th chapter of Matthew's gospel which discusses Christ's trial and crucifixion and uh, once the restoration um, occurs in 1660 uh, the 30th of January becomes a fast day in the Book of Common Prayer until 1859 actually even in the alternative service book of 1980, Charles is reintroduced on the minor festivals um, I mean there's obviously no way of Having a canonization process in the Anglican Church, but that's about as close as you can get to but list imme- somebody.
0: But immediately, what happens, just chapman, is what you said at the very beginning of the programme is that the two-headed-headed comes up again because in Milton writes iconoclasties, which is the emergence of the great Republican uh, writer Milton attacking icon Absolutely. basilica and, and dismantling it and
2: iconoclasties, you yeah. destroy the image. Yes. Um, and and there's a long tradition of republican at- attacks on icon basilica. I mean as Claire 's pointed out this is an enormous bestseller. It's reprinted throughout the 17th, 18th and even 19th centuries. And Milton's tradition um, is one that says, you know, this is idolatry. You know, n- not only that, it's probably plagiarized from Sidney's poems. You know, it, Ch- Charles didn't even write it and th- that that's clearly something that comes out in the 1690s when the whole republican experiment is is remembered and re redesigned. Um Again, Icon Basilicae, Charles's text, it has a perdurability of influence that is embodied in in the image of the frontispiece. And that, again, manifests itself in social practice. You know, all of the rumours and um, folklore about the healing power of Charles's blood, for example, or the little angels that you would get when you were touched by him, persist through this period into the 18th century. So we we get the invention of a miraculous monarchy. So the the irony, again, is at the very moment when his head's chopped off, he, he invents an incredibly powerful, persistent tradition.
0: Let's just go a little bit further in, uh, with Milton here, Tom Healy. Uh, is there, can you tell us the, the, the references, as it were, in Paradise Lost to this, to Charlie I?
3: Well, taking up entirely on this idea of, of the false icon, um, that what Milton suggests is this model that monarchs or earthly monarchs can, and Charles particularly, can be fundamentally diabolical, that when Satan is thrown out of heaven and lands in hell, one of the first things he starts doing is building his city of pandemonium, which has a lot of similarities to Charles's court. And so there is a strong um, presentation that what is happening... In those who support uh, Charles and create this image are of this diabolical camp. I mean this is this, this great fracturing point in in English society in a way is is actually fighting using rather similar tools and similar ideas, but but opposed to one another so to milton 's mind. This type of earthly monarchy goes it goes back to this idea of excess that this w- one way that we can recognize um its its falsity is that It is unstable and excessive. It is involved in the city of man rather than the city of God. So it is against man. So it it goes against this this whole tradition. Mm. It it is not what Erasmus, in the education of the Christian prince, tries to outline as a Christian prince should should do with his sense of moderation. So Charles is made, and the Stuart monarchy in its absolutism, is made out to be uh, excessive, given over to its own appetites, not interested in the health of the nation. And yet in 1660,
0: Charles II comes back, and the fact that he comes back seems to be a resurrection of the idea of divine right. He loves to touch for the king's evil. A 100,000 people turn up. It's a great event after event. Eastertide is one of the great events in, uh, in, in, in London, or indeed in European life, in these mass gatherings. We haven't, alas, much evidence for whether it, it worked or not. I don't say that. Sarcastically, we don't seem to have a great deal of evidence. But can I come to you on another point here, Claire Jackson? We've got the Restoration not only of Stuart monarchy but of the idea of divine right uh, and at the same time we have uh, a person such as Locke beginning uh, beginning a, a very clear uh, um, attack on that can you Tell us what Locke said, and that it's Locke, it makes it, made it very important.
1: And it's Locke actually reacting to the, very directly reacting towards these ideas. Most, I mean, the first of the two treatises that's published in 1689 is very directly against a work called Patriarcha, published by Sir Robert Filmer. And certainly in the Restoration, as you say, the cult of divine monarchy flourishes as it's never flourished before. Robert Filmer's Patriarcha is published in 1680, Well, Filmer had died in 1653. He didn't get permission to publish Patriarcha during the Civil Wars, because it seen as more royalist than the, ro- than the king if you like, it was too extreme and the reason that Locke chooses it as the target for the two treatises in uh, the first of the two treatises um, that he's writing at the beginning of the 1680s is because he says this is the current divinity of the times what Filmer does is draw a very direct parallel, moves away from a traditional mode of arguing for divine right monarchy of um, using pr- primarily scriptural texts to actually move on to a much more naturalistic territory and say actually if Genesis gives us the evidence that kings are the fathers of their people. It's totally fallacious to say that people are born free. Everybody's born in subjection. Everybody's born into families. And the obedience that people owe to their fathers is exactly the same as is owed to their uh, to, to their kings. And Locke draws a very clear distinction between James's writings on kingship, he calls him that most wise king who well understood the notion of things, as opposed to this very thoroughgoing naturalistic argument that actually then does develop into a or could be extended into a theory of sovereignty to say that kings must be above the law. Um, and Locke very deliberately collapses the distinction between absolute and arbitrary power that James had worked so hard to um, reinforce at the beginning of the 17th century. James James had told, in and Doran, James had told his heir that the only way you'll understand what a king is is to know what a tyrant is, and you need to keep those two in a sort of mutual antithesis. And Locke immediately just collapses it and says this is absolute arbitrary power. It's fallacious to say that people are born in subjection. Actually, men are born free, they have inalienable rights, government is a construct, kings are appointed for particular offices, and if they fail, then individuals have a right of resistance. And that argument really kind of begins to move the whole debate away from... Particular texts of scripture onto a much more naturalistic utilitarian basis.
2: It's quite interesting, though, Claire, isn't it, that, that many of the the sort of conceptual arguments that Locke puts together there to as an antidote to divine right monarchy. Can actually be seen being rehearsed earlier in those mm-hmm. Catholic theorists mm-hmm. who are opposed to Protestant divine right theories. So we, we've got a, again a counterintuitive importation of continental ideas that have already existed.
1: And I think what one then therefore sees is the interplay of practice um, and politics. I mean, I think you know the reason that the, the Catholic arguments have so much it can be discredited at the beginning of the century um, are because of things like the Gunpowder Plot, and then they immediately come back onto the f- um, stage again yeah. in the late 1680s.
2: But the irony is, of course, that. It, Locke writing against mm. Charles II is because he thinks he's mm. popish, he's mm. Catholic. Absolutely. But he's exploiting... <laughs> he <is>. yeah, <laughs> he's he's,
0: he's <laughs> exploiting Catholic ideas. So is the... We, we've brought in Locke just a little but We have introduced him into conversation. Is the
3: literature still uh, t- tackling this idea in any significant way, Tom? Yes. um uh, Marvell, who similarly has this equation between arbitrary power and popery, and writes a track on it, uh, also writes uh, a, a striking poem uh, uh, called "Last Instructions to a Painter," in which uh, he marks out really the excesses which are taking place in court as, and this, particularly the sexual excesses, as being instrumental of. The failure of the English state to defend itself in the dutch wars uh, that that really this excess coming from the uh, from the monarchy and from the top is uh, uh really responsible for. The failure of the nation the, the nation is is uh, is rendered vulnerable and there 's an, an astonishingly striking image at the heart of this where England, naked and dishevelled, having been battered around by all these evil king 's counsellors and so forth, comes to the monarch in the dead of night and seeks for Sucker for help. England in, in, in
0: the shape of an England d- in the shape
3: of a naked woman, dishevelled and, and, and comes penitent to the king, asking to be restored. And the king rapes her. Uh, but what is most unsettling about this is that Marvell suggests that the king finds her very distressed condition the act which causes his arousal. That uh, And this is the most telling instance that the monarch is really working against the state itself, or against the, the spirit, the whole nation itself. The monarch is actually finding the collapse of the nation that's in its unhealthy, in its distressed state, attractive to, 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 to commit rapine on. I mean, this, this satanic image is really very, very powerful and very distasteful, as it's supposed to be. Is
0: it, was it the accession of James II uh, with his Catholic tenets and the Glorious Revolution, William Borange came in and refused to have anything to do with this, uh, a reasoning Dutch person? Uh, was it, was that, did that mark the end of it, or had ideas driven it out? I, th- I think that's a very tricky question.
2: I mean, the, the theological um, premises of society persist right the way through the 18th and perhaps into the 19th century. I mean, the confessional basis of political citizenship is there until 1828. If you're Catholic, you can't be a good citizen. Clearly, by the end of the 17th century, though, the sorts of um, instincts, the the great statement, no bishop, no king... The Church of England is is pretty much disestablished in 1689, so that the sort of sacral dimensions of the monarchy are also uh, undercut. We, we need perhaps to remember that you know, the, the rise of science is key here, and even if we took something like the Royal Touch from the 1660s. Physicians associated with the Royal Society start asking questions. How does the royal touch work? Well, perhaps there are natural causes. So, so
0: it, it demystifies, disenchants, Monica. And the royal touch is very much is the, the outward manifestation mm. of the inner inner divinity. And William of fin- Orange won't have anything to do well, with interesting it. Interestingly any yeah. royal touching. No. Finally, Claire, do you see? Do you see the glorious revolution? You see, William of Orange is bringing it to an effective end.
1: Um. Well, no, I think I think I mean I think what's very interesting about the, the way in which resistance to James occurs is that the emphasis on non-resistance is very important. Everyone's very keen to distance themselves from any notion that James actually abdicated. None of us really resisted anymore. And I think retrospectively, the divine right of kings does acquire this um, dignity. I mean, it did save um, England from descending into some sort of popish network of inquisitorial jurisdictions. It did sort of um, save us um, all being in some sort of Presbyterian theocracy. And it also sort of identifies probably a non-utilitarian attachment to government and that perhaps Burke picks up in the late 18th century that you can't just judge government purely on you know, how good it is, that there has to be a sort of more emotive affection. I think that that does reside through the 18th and into the 19th centuries.
2: I think one of the other things we should perhaps emphasize is the republican tradition continues in the 17th and into the 18th century, but it's a republicanism that takes the institution of a virtuous monarchy at its core. That sounds very counterintuitive and paradoxical, but even republicans recognize in the 18th century in England a Protestant monarchy is the best bulwark against continental popery.
0: Well, thank you very much, Claire Jackson, Justin Champion, Tom Healy. For me, back to the Lemsips, and next week, Arabian Nights with Sinbad the Sailor, Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, and much, much else. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.